Last week we spoke to you from Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, but we emphasized mainly the upper part of those two verses. For Paul said, let your conversation, again, that means your personality, that means your overall being, your actions, your thinking, etc., be without covetousness. Uh, the tenth of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not covet. So he says, let your conversation be without that, and be content with such things as you have. He says, for he has said, he has said, talking about God, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, what shall I fear that man shall do unto me? Let's look at the bottom half of that this morning, Lord willing. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he hath said. Now I think we need to understand who the he is here. The he is the great God of heaven and of earth. The he is the omnipotent one. The he is the omniscient one. The he is the omnipresent one. The he is the God of truth, the immutable God, the God who cannot lie and he cannot change. He's truth personified. That's who the he is here. If this he was anybody other than God, I, I would probably not even mention it to you. <laughs> but the he here is not man. The he here is God. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now this is one of the many, many, many promises in the word of God. A lot of times I like to tell you how many times something's in the Bible, one thing or another. But I cannot tell you how many promises of God are recorded in the Bible. I don't believe any other man can. A man by the name of Herbert Lockyer lived a number of years ago. He was a, a, certainly a, a theologian. He wrote a lot of books uh, that were started off with the title, All. All the men of the Bible. All the women of the Bible. All the prayers in the Bible. Can you imagine trying to put together a book covering all the prayers of the Bible? But he put out one, all the promises of God in the Bible. But I'm telling you, they are innumerable. I'm, I almost can 100% guarantee you, he didn't get them all. <laughs> he may have said all the promises of God, but I can almost guarantee you, he didn't get them all. When I think about the promises of God, I think about what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.4. He said, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises whereby we are partakers of the divine nature that's within us. Notice how Peter describes the promises of God here. Whereby are given unto us. These are given to you. These are given to you by God's grace and his mercy. He didn't have to give them to you, but he did. And the, the, the free, these are free that God gives to you. Wherefore, given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Not just promises, but precious promises. Not just precious promises, but great precious promises. And not just great precious promises, but exceeding great precious promises. The word exceeding is used frequently in the New Testament. Well, throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament. And it has various meanings to it, but it basically means to go far beyond the expected. Far beyond the mark. Sometimes it's a word that emphasizes intensity of something. For example, in Matthew 2, in the opening verses, you find where God sent the star, the star, not just a star, but the star, some people call it the star of Bethlehem, sent it some wise men to guide them from where they were at to come to Bethlehem 
to see the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was a young child. The Bible says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They didn't just have joy. They had great joy, but they didn't just have great joy. They had exceeding great joy. That's the kind of joy I like, don't you? I like exceeding great joy, just be beyond anything that I could possibly uh, imagine or, you know, uh, expect. But on the other hand, when the Lord was about to go to Calvary, he told his disciples several different times, several different places, he said, the hour is drawing nigh that I shall be betrayed by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they shall take me, and I shall be slain. They shall kill me. When he said it, the disciples, the Bible says the disciples had exceeding sorrow. This is not ordinary sorrow. This isn't average sorrow. This was exceeding sorrow to think that the one they loved so dearly, the one that they had walked with for nearly three and a half years, the one they'd heard teach, the one they'd heard preach, is telling them, I'm about to be slain. I'm about to be killed. It says they had exceeding sorrow. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, Paul asked the question, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? He's asking a question. What is the exceeding greatness of his power? He says it worketh in us. What is the exceeding greatness of power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which worketh in us? What is the exceeding greatness of his power? What if he just said, what, what about his power? That would have been wonderful, but he says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? I want you to understand what that word exceeding really means here this morning. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? Not to the unbeliever, but to the believer. He's talking to you about you and about me. What is that exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead? The power that dwells in you that enables you to believe that there is a Savior, that enables you to believe in one whom your natural eyes have never seen, as according to the greatness of his power that works in you that raised his son from the dead. That's resurrection power, you see. Ephesians 3.20 says, Wherefore he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. He's still talking about the power that's working in you, resurrection power. He says, wherefore he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to that power that worketh in us, no matter what we say or what we think. You, you getting an idea of this word exceeding here? I hope that you are. In the last part of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, for our light affliction is but for a moment. He said, but it worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. He says, because we look not on the things which are seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen, which are eternal. He said, whenever you're going through afflictions, whenever you're going through trials and tribulations, if you will just weigh it out against that eternal glory that awaits every child of grace, then that affliction is not quite as heavy as you thought it was. For our light afflictions, how long is our light affliction? It's but for a moment. It's not for eternity. 
For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. For we see not, look not on things which are seen, which are temporal, but things which are not seen. You're looking on things not seen. That seems to be a contradiction. That is a paradox. It's true. You're looking and you're seeing something that can't be seen. That is, it can't be seen with these eyes, but it can be seen with the eyes that God has given you in the work of regeneration. We call them the eyes of faith. You know, it took four Greek words to be translated exceeding in that verse. It's like they were having a hard time coming up with a proper word to describe that. It finally came out exceeding, but it, they used four different Greek words to do it. That was pretty amazing to me. This word exceeding is a very important word. Now, he used it to describe the promises of God. Whereby given unto us exceeding and great and precious promises. They're not only exceeding promises, they're great promises. Why are they great promises? Because the one who promised them is great, right? I mean, that's a, that's a simple explanation. You probably got ahead of me on that one. <laughs> Psalms 48, 1 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. If he's great, he's great to be praised, right? In the city of our God. He's our great high priest that's passed into the heavens. He's our great shepherd that's been raised from the dead. He's loved you with a great love. Look in Ephesians 2, 4. Wherefore God, who's rich in mercy, where his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when he was dead in trespasses and in sins. A great God loved you with a great love. That's an everlasting love. He died for you as the good shepherd. He arose for you as the great shepherd of the sheep. And he's our great high priest now because he's on the right hand of God making intercession for us. Whereby I've given us exceeding great. These promises are great because they're powerful promises. How many times have you heard people say, you need to be careful not to make so many promises? That's good advice. You know, don't be careful. Don't overpromise. That, that's good advice. <laughs> if you're going to make a promise, be sure you keep it. That's good advice. But let me tell you something about when God makes a promise. God has never overpromised. God has never made too many promises. And God has never failed to keep his promise. That's the difference between men and God, okay? When you read a promise, I don't care if it's Old Testament, New Testament, it might be specifically to an individual in the Old Testament, but if it's quoted over here, as Paul's quoting it over here, that means it's applicable to you. You can claim it just as well as the person it was written to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. So I want you to be able to claim this promise this morning that the Lord has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Because it's on that basis that you're going to be able to boldly say, the Lord is my helper. You can say that based upon what he said. Now the word bold or boldly is used several times in Hebrews, but you know Hebrews 4.16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That word boldly means with great confidence. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may do what? Obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There's a throne you can boldly approach. Here, the word boldly is used. Wherefore, given us exceeding great and precious promises. For he has said, so that we might boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Now the promises are precious because they come from God who views you as being precious in his sight. 
You think God would make a promise to you that wouldn't be of high value? Something that's precious is, is of, of great value, and the promises of God, I think, are invaluable. I don't think you could put a value on the promises of God. You can't cap, cap it off, in other words, right? He goes, yes, beyond anything. His promises are innumerable. His promises are precious. His promises are great. His promises are exceeding. Whereby giving us exceeding great and precious promises, plural. Now, one of the great and precious, most precious promises in the world is found in Titus 1 and 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised <laughs> before the world began. That's simple, isn't it? Eternal life's a promise. Who made the promise? God made the promise. He didn't make it to everybody in general, nobody in particular. He made it to a people that he foreknew, chosen Christ before time ever began. God is the only true promise keeper. Man is known as a promise breaker. God is known as the promise keeper. That's a vast difference between the two, right? Thank God I can preach to you about a promise keeper here this morning who's never failed to keep one promise that he's ever made to his little children. Now, you know, this reminds me of a story of this elderly woman. And her way of getting truth out of the Bible was to have a closed Bible. And then she'd close her eyes and she'd pray, Lord, show me what I need to know for today. And she'd open it up and then that's what it's supposed to be. So one day she did that. And she opened it up and her eyes fastened on the verse where it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. She said, Lord, that'll never do. Try it again. Oh, yeah. She read the place. Go and do thou likewise. <laughs> she said, we're going to try this again. Whatsoever thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> That's not the way to get the truth out of the Bible, brother. That's a lazy man's approach. <laughs> And you're not going to get it by putting it under your bed at night through osmosis. I think that's what they call it. It's not going to penetrate through the pillow right into here. Trust me. It's just not going to be that way. Whereby giving us exceeding great and precious promises that we might be partakers of the divine nature. That divine nature is inside of you. That just simply means by these promises, you can have fellowship with that divine nature. That spiritual nature is inside of you. You have fellowship with it. Did you fellowship with the inward man this week? Did you walk with the outward man? Did you fellowship with the inward man? You know, it's important we try to fellowship with the inward man, right? All right, for he said. Now, where did he say this? Paul said he said it. If he said it, we'll be able to find it. So we go back here a long ways to Genesis chapter 28. We get to chapter 28 in the book of Genesis. There's a man by the name of Jacob who at this particular time has left home. He's left home on a journey. He has deceived his father. He's lied to his father. He stepped in when his father was old and his father's eyes were so dim he couldn't see. And through a disguise that his mother made for him, we find that he took a birthright that his father Isaac was going to give to his brother Esau. When Esau finds out about it, Esau wasn't happy as you might suspect and we find where Jacob's mother schemed again and came up with another plan and talked to Isaac about sending Jacob on a journey back to her land where she came from, to her uncle Laban's. 
and Jacob's on his way. His name means supplanter. It means trickster. And he's lived up to his name quite, <laughs> quite good up to this point. But he goes and he lays down. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, you'll find he's in what is called a desert land, a waste howling wilderness. And he lays down and he finds a stone and he puts that stone under his head for a pillow, P-I-L-L-O-W. And during the night while he's asleep, and brother, let me tell you, there's never a time when a man is any more frail or weak than he is when he's asleep. You know, David could have slain Saul so easily one time when he was asleep. But instead of slaying his enemy, he wouldn't do it. He would not touch the Lord's anointed. But he didn't have one of the messengers to go down there and get his spear. And he brought it back. And then he called from a distance. And when he woke up, he let him know, I could have slain you last night. Here's your spear right here. You were asleep. And then he rebuked Abner, his bodyguard, for not being a better bodyguard to watch over his master. There's never a time when a person's any more frail, any more weak than when he's asleep. He doesn't know anything that's going on. Jacob is asleep. He's laying on the dust of the earth. I want you to see the picture. He's laying on the ground. He's laying on the dust of the earth. And God appears unto him. Now, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Here's one of those appearances right here that God makes. All men mean all categories of men, all classifications of men, because God's got a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on the face of this earth. And God will make an appearance in each and every single one of them sometime between their conception and their death. Based upon the biblical record, God has never appeared to Jacob until this time. God appears to him. And he sees a ladder that reached from this earth right into heaven. I don't know how tall that ladder was. This past week or so, we uh, had to do some trimming some tall trees in our yard. And I had a seven-foot ladder, but it wasn't quite tall enough. Mark was helping us, and uh, it just won't quite. So I come up in the church and got an eight-foot ladder. And that helped, but it, we had to finally wind up and borrow a 10-foot ladder from the neighbor. <laughs> and we really should have come back and got the 12-foot ladder that we had here in the church. The next time, we know it was a learning experience. But that ladder that came from heaven, I want you to know, it didn't just stop 10 foot above the head of Jacob. It didn't stop five foot from the ground where Jacob was at, it came all the way down to the dust, right where Jacob was. When God makes his appearance, he comes right where you're at, which by nature is the very dust of this earth in which we live, from which we were made. I come to John 1:51, and the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to Nathaniel, and he refers to this situation, this experience of Jacob. And he speaks about that ladder that went from heaven to earth, and he says, angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. When I view that scene... That ladder that came from heaven, from the very throne of God in glory, right down to the dust of the earth where Jacob is laying. And see those angels ascending, descending the ladders like people passing and repassing each other on a city street. Except these are angels. Angels are sent to minister. Angels are sent to bring messages. And these angels were ascending and descending upon this ladder. And then God spoke to Jacob. He said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac. He said, the very ground on which you're living, he says, this very dust here, I'm going to give it to you and to your seed. 
He says, whether it be from the east and west, the north and the south. And then I want you to notice a promise. He said, I am with you. He said, I will keep you, and I will bring you into this land again, and I will not fail you nor forsake you until I bring to pass what I'm telling you. Here's where he said it. He said it to Jacob. Jacob woke up, and here was his first reaction to this experience. I mean, when you, how would you like to wake up to having a revelation like that? How do you normally wake up in the morning? <laughs> Dreading to get up, wake up in the morning, wanting to go back to sleep, hit the old pause button, one thing. Or well, I'm going to tell you, Jacob didn't hit no pause button. Jacob didn't yawn when he got up this morning. When he got up this morning, this message was fresh on his mind. The Almighty God had revealed himself unto him, telling him, I'm with you. Telling him, I will keep you. Telling him, I'm going to bring you back into the land. Your seed shall come back to this land in which you dwell. And I will not fail you nor forsake you till I bring all these things to come to pass. Here's the first time God said it. Jacob awakes. He said, truly, this is the house of God. And I knew it not. He got in a hurry. I, I love to see God's people get in a hurry when they've had such a rich experience with the Lord. Reminds me of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You know, when the Lord came uh, there to Samaria, and he sat on the well uh, there at the, at the city of Samaria, and here comes this woman along Samaritan. And Jews, Samaritans, had no dealings one with another. And Jesus said, give me a drink. And she says, how is it now being a Jew? Ask of me to give you a drink of water. See, now I'm a Samaritan. And then the Lord and her enter into a dialogue that we will not go into. But let me just get down to the point I want. At the end, we find where this woman who come there with her water pot, a very important task of the day, she came with a water pot. She left her water pot, and she went back into the city. And she said, come see a man which told me all things which I ever did. She found something more important than a water pot. She, found, she thought she needed to do something that was more important than a water pot. That water pot needed me filled and took back for drinking, for cleaning, for cooking, for washing, whatever it might be. But she found something that was even more important than that. Brother, I'm telling you, we all got our water pots, don't we? But when it comes a time in life, we need to leave that water pot alone. Don't worry. <laughs> Some people, I tell people, if you're worried about uh, you won't get it, uh, something done because you come to church, don't worry about it. Uh, it'll still be there when you get back. And nobody's going to do it for you. If you're worried about somebody coming and doing it for you, don't worry about it. They're not going to do that. It's going to be there for you when you get back. It'll still be there. You can still do it when you get back. Zacchaeus, that rich publican, when he heard Jesus came by Jericho, he wanted to see Jesus. He got in a hurry. He ran down. He climbed up the sycamore tree. It was very unusual to see a man like that, a publican running. That was out of the ordinary. But you see, he wanted to see Jesus, so he got in a hurry climbed up that tree. You know what the Lord said unto him? He said, Zacchaeus, you make haste. Now usually I think about somebody's doing something hastily. They're doing it maybe quicker than they ought to do it or they're doing, you know, uh, they're not taking their time well enough. But the Lord told him to do it in haste. He says, make haste and come down for I must abide at your house today. Zacchaeus came down the tree. <laughs> As I've said many times before, I, I probably would have fell out of the tree. <laughs> That was such a shocking thing. The Lord just come walking by and he stopped right in the foot of that tree and looked up and said, Zacchaeus, 
I must go home with you today. He's not even going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to have him in his house. He's going to have him for the visitor. And Zacchaeus came and made haste. And he says he went home and joyfully received him. Jacob got in a hurry. When he had this experience there in Genesis 28, he got in a hurry. And he took that stone that he put under his head for that pillow and he, he erected it he, uh, into a pillar and he poured water on top of, excuse me, oil on top of it. And that was uh, the oil in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit, is a picture of God's grace. Later on, when God cut Moses, built the tabernacle, when he got it all built, had the priesthood all set aside, and it was ready to be put into operation, the very first thing Moses did, he took oil and anointed the entire tabernacle. Then he anointed Aaron and his sons in the priesthood. Remember the verse in Psalms, says how, how, um, how wonderful and how beautiful it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment that ran down Aaron's beard all the way down to the foot of his garments. He poured oil on that as an offering to God. And then the next thing he did, he repeated the promise. Now, he uses the word if, but he didn't use, I don't think he used the word if as if this couldn't happen, this might not happen, a condition. I think he used the word if like we use it sometimes, meaning since this is the case. If God is with me, and he was, if God shall bring me back into the land, he promised he would, and give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, and keep me, and not leave me nor forsake me, he just he quotes the promise of God. Now I want to give you a little uh, something that I think will be beneficial to you. When you're reading your Bible, and you read something like our text is this morning, and you read it, Say it out loud. You read it. And before you move on, just say it out loud. I think it will have more emphasis and it will be planted in your mind in a stronger sense if you just say it out loud. And that's what Jacob is doing. He's repeating God's promise to him. I love the eyes. There's four eyes in that promise that those eyes belong to God, not to man. You know, I, I warn you from time to time about that word I. It's the middle letter in the word sin. It's the first letter in the word idle. It's the first word in the word inconsiderate. I can go on. About every kind of word that you can think of that is very negative, it's going to have the letter I in it. It's about you. It's about me. The word diet has got an I in it. And I've told you before, while I don't like to go on a diet, because if you drop the T, you have the word die left, D-I-E. Uh, oh, well, I'll, I'll pass that thought. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Jacob got in a hurry, and then here's what he said. If I do all those things, he said, then God shall be my God. And he says, I will give one-tenth of everything I have. Now listen, this was before the law of tithing ever got established in the Old Testament under Moses. Jacob felt on his own. He said, I will give a tenth of what I've got to, to God. It's going to be the case if he's with me, if he's going to keep me, if he's going to bring me, if he's going to clothe me, if he's going to feed me. He says, then I'm going to do this. He changed the name of the place from Luz, L-U-Z, to Bethel. The word Luz means separation. 
But he's not separated from God anymore. Oh, he, he has an intimate now uh, fellowship with, with God. The word Bethel means the house of God. I love our name here. <laughs> house of God. That's what Bethel means is the house of God. It's a very uh, well-known and well-used name among uh, all kind of you know, religious groups. The name Bethel, and here's where it comes from. I found another place the Lord said this. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Now, as you're going toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you know that Moses is getting close to the end of his life. In fact, chapter 31 starts off like this. It says, Moses said, I'm now 120 years of age. We know that he dies at 120. But he tells Israel, he says, after I pass away, pass on, Joshua's taking my place. He says, now you be strong and courageous, for God has said he will not leave you nor forsake you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Moses tells Israel that. God told Israel through Moses, I will not fail you and I'll not forsake you. He says, you're going to the land of Canaan. And then he turns to Joshua and tells Joshua exactly the same thing. Now, Israel was to occupy the land of Canaan. It's been 40 years since they failed to enter in when they could, and nothing's changed in the land of Canaan. With that thought in mind, let's come over here to Joshua chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, you'll find where Moses now is dead, and Joshua took his place. And Joshua takes his place under the divine direction of God. God sovereignly chose Joshua to replace Moses. And then he says in verse 5, he's going to give Joshua a threefold promise. What's in front of Joshua is no easy task. What's in front of Joshua is going to be a great challenge. What is in front of Joshua? A great wall city is in front of Joshua. There are seven nations in the land of Canaan in front of Joshua. That's all in front of Joshua. There are giants and their families in the land of Canaan. That's all before Joshua. Nothing has changed. Remember when those spies came back from Canaan's land? There were 12 of them. And 10 says, oh, it's a fertile land. It's a rich land. It flows with milk and honey, okay. says, but there's giants in the land, and there's great walled cities in the land that reaches all the way to heaven. Have you ever noticed when people uh, don't want to do something, how they exaggerate? <laughs> how they exaggerate? There's great walled cities which reach all the way to heaven. That's a pretty good-sized wall, isn't it? High wall. Well, I, I think they exaggerated just a little, wouldn't you say? That's all the same. Nothing's changed. Now, Joshua and Caleb said, we'd be well able to take it. But the people listened to the ten rather than the two. And God judged them for their unbelief, and they spent 40 years in the wilderness marching around. But that 40 years is coming to an end. Moses, the last chapter, by the way, Deuteronomy 34, the last chapter, you find the death and burial of Moses. God thought enough of burial to bury his servant. Moses died. God buried him. But where he buried him has never been revealed to man. Nobody knows where he's buried today. God took care of all of that. And we come to Joshua 1.5, and he says, There shall not be one man that shall be able to stand against thee all the days of thy life. That's the first promise. Second promise, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. 
Promise number two. Now, this is all one promise in three parts, I kind of like. It's a threefold promise. Okay? And then the third one is this. And I will never leave thee. I will, well, he puts it this way. I will never fail thee, nor forsake thee. Now, that's the encouragement that God got directly from God as he's about to lead this nation across Jordan's River. And the very first obstacle they face is a city called Jericho. Jericho is perhaps the greatest, most fortified city. If they can take Jericho, they can take them all. If they can't take Jericho, no need to go any further. That's kind of like the way I see the Bible sometimes. When people ask me, where do you need to start reading the Bible? I say, well, Genesis 1-1 is as good a place as I know. In the beginning, God created. You need to see God as the creator God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If you can't get back Genesis 1-1, no need to go any further. Because it doesn't get any easier. You're going to read about a Red Sea parting when a God sent a strong east wind, parted that sea in two great walls of water that opened up for his people to be delivered across the Red Sea. And then he brought it all down on top of the Egyptians who tried to follow them and to pursue after them, but God drowned them in the Red Sea. I can tell you about a man being in the den of lions and God protected him. And the next day, those lions in that den all had their mastery over the enemy of Daniel and they slew him there in the den of lions. I can tell you about three Hebrew children who experienced flames of fire in a furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. It was so hot, those who had them thrown in were slain themselves on the outside. But not the Hebrew children. I can tell you about a woman who had a child when she was 90 years old. Sarah, having Isaac. I can tell you about a man who fathered a child who was 100 years old, his father Abraham. I can tell you about a virgin that conceived and brought forth a man in this world, the Son of God into this world. I can go on and on and on and on, could I not? I could. No need to to you. I know, I know what you believe. But if you can't get past Genesis 1 and 1, you might as well not go any further. But if you can handle Genesis 1 and 1, you can handle any of it. There's nothing hard or impossible for God to do. He is the God of heaven. He's the God of earth. He says, no man shall be able to stand before thee. No man. No matter who he is, no man can stand before thee. As I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Well, Joshua knew what it was to be with Moses. You know the first thing it says about Joshua in Joshua 1.1? Start the book. It says, Joshua was a minister of Moses. That means he was his attendant. He was a supporter. He's right by Moses' side. He was an eyewitness of everything that God did for Moses. He knew how he had delivered Moses. Even when a little child in that ark of bulrushes when he was three months old and God delivered him from the decree of the king that all male children should be drowned in the river. He was with him in the first 40 years, the middle 40, in the last 40 he stood right by his side. They crossed the Red Sea together. They went into the wilderness together. They spent 40 years together in the wilderness. Joshua saw how God turned, uh, uh, you know, uh, brought water out of a rock. He saw how God sent down manna from on high. He witnessed every bit of that. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not fail you nor leave you. Come over here to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verses 15, 16, 17. 
And here are the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the young minister Timothy. He says, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Now, I've been trying to preach to you here this morning how God's promised he will never fail you, he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. And here Paul saying, all men forsook me. And the all men that forsook Paul, many of them were his close friends and acquaintances. They'd gone with him to Rome. But when they saw Paul apprehended, when they saw him arrested, when they saw him beaten, and maybe his life hang, hung in the balance, they were no longer willing to walk with him. He said, but the Lord stood with me. <laughs> Isn't that so wonderful? But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. I'm telling you, the Lord is going to stand with you, brother, if you're in the right. Now, the Lord's never promised to stand with you in the wrong. I could take you, I won't have time this morning, but I can take you to the Old Testament where uh, he, uh, he addressed the king of Israel at that time. And he says, uh, when he done right, God was with him. But when he relied on the king of Syria, God said, I will not be with you. All men forsook me. But above that, there's one man, his name is Alexander the coppersmith. He said, Alexander the coppersmith had done me much evil. We're not told what the evil was, but he opposed Paul's efforts left and right. He probably criticized Paul. He probably tried to defame Paul's character, probably challenged Paul's integrity and his truthfulness and his genuineness and his sincerity, doing all he possibly could to keep Paul from being an effective minister and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he's done me much evil. I pray to God that he'll reward him according to his works. I got a feeling the Apostle Paul could pray some pretty strong, effectual, fervent prayers, don't you? I wouldn't want Paul praying that for me. I tell you that right now. And you know what Paul's doing, though? Paul's saying, I'm not going to get involved personally. He says, I'm going to ask God to take care of it. God is to, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, he says, Vengeance belong to me, thus saith the Lord, and uh, I will repay. There are things you leave in the hands of God, and God will take care of it. So he just prayed that God would reward him. The word reward is not a positive thing right here. Then he says, all men, my first answer, all men forsook me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. In the book of Mark chapter 14, I read these words spoken by our Lord and Savior. He's hanging on a cross. He's being crucified with two other wicked men, two other thieves, one of which belonged to the Lord. The Lord dealt with him at the 11th hour. I won't go into that this morning. I'm tempted to, but I won't. I want to just read the words of our Savior. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God did something to his son he's promised never to do to you. He's promised never to leave you nor forsake you, but he forsook his son that he might not ever forsake you. If he had not forsaken his son on the cross, they could have never taken his life. Their father, my friends, had to withdraw his presence. Remember what the Lord said? Should, I could pray to my father right now. He said, 12 uh, uh, legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels and deliver me. But the father, he didn't pray it and the father didn't send them. And, and, and I can see the army of angels right now all, all ready to come. They said, Father, give us the green light, and we're there. 
give us the green light and we'll take care of the situation. But the Father didn't give the green light. The Savior must suffer. The Savior must take our sins and own body to the tree of the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ must be forsaken for a moment that we will never be forsaken eternally or even here in time in a temporal way. I'll never fail you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. 